Hi, I'm Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy, here's something amazing. Craft sanity, craft sanity, art and craft creativity, interviews with people who make, they are here to help keep you sane. Craft sanity, craft sanity, craft sanity. Hello and welcome to episode 207. This is yet another Art Prize episode. On this episode, I'm going to bring you a conversation that I had recently with Patricia Constantine. She is an illustration professor at Kendall College of Art and Design. Her work is called Sin Eater. This two-dimensional piece is on display at Grand Rapids Community College, where I teach. It's actually located one floor up from my classroom. I ran into Patricia. I was at the venue with my friend, and she happened to be sitting there at a table outside the gallery. So I didn't immediately know that it was her piece, but we got into a conversation and I was like, oh, excellent. So we scheduled an interview and here we are. Just to give you guys a heads up, on this episode, we're gonna talk about the kind of the story behind her work. And it's this uh, three panel, very large piece of artwork that is called Sin Eater. It's 2D, it was created with a combination of watercolor, charcoal and pastel on paper. And it's uh, 90 by 72 inches, so it's quite large, this piece. It's almost life-size. It's very interesting because I didn't know really anything about the concept of sin eating. Obviously, this piece is uh, a little bit controversial here in Grand Rapids because it depicts Donald Trump and it depicts Betsy DeVos. And it also depicts the artist. She's depicting herself as kind of the central figure in this piece of artwork I'm going to post pictures over at craftsanity.com so you can take a look at it. And I'll also share links to see Patricia's other work. Before we get to the conversation, I do want to give a quick shout out of thanks to my Patreon sponsors and everybody else who keeps this little show going. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Now it's time to grab a project and settle in. It's time for Patricia to tell the story behind her 2017 Art Prize entry. Your piece is called Sin Eater. And if you can maybe give a little historical context of what you're referring to in this. A sin eater um, from 18th and 19th century Scotland, um, which I'm, I'm rather obsessed with history of Scotland. But a uh, sin eater was uh, someone who was hired to eat the sins of a dead loved one. And uh, so you would absorb the sins of, of someone who was deceased and then they could go to heaven and they'd be free and clear. And of course the sin eater you know, is absorbing all the sin, right? But they would put a piece of bread on the breast of the deceased and then invite the sin eater in. Sin eaters were not very popular. Uh, They lived on the outskirts of town. And one of the reasons people would choose to be a sin eater was that they were hungry. This was not a time when there was a lot of food. (laughs) Right. Um, So it was kind of like, okay, if I want to eat and I'm poor, uh, then I might, you know, be a sin eater. How much would a person get paid or was it just the bread? It would depend on uh, the agreement, I guess, that the sin eater would make with the family. 
a lot of time it was just the food. So it might be more than a piece of bread, but historically it sort of says at, at least a piece of bread was sort of laid on the breast of the person um, that had died. So they, they might give them a few coins, you know, if they had the money for that. But but honestly, I really do think it was pretty much the food. And I know I'm asking very detailed questions about something that is, you know, it's only the, no, it's the okay. background or to your, your, but I'm I'm quite fascinated by this concept as well. And mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in your research uh, when they would have the person come in and eat the bread, how was there a period of time it had to set on the on the deceased person, or was it more of a symbolic placement, and then they would give it to the person to eat? And did they have to eat it in front of the family? Like, was there, or could they take it with them? Or I mean, how did no, that process? No, these are really good. These are really good questions. So it did not have to lay there for any amount of time. And traditionally, the the sin eater would come in alone like they would leave the bread there and then the family would stay out of the room okay um and then the senator would would eat they did not get to hang out for the funeral okay this was not a popular person okay and so was there a set amount of bread like a whole loaf and they had to eat the entire thing or was it just a couple pieces of bread it could just be a couple of pieces of bread but i had read some articles would sort of say that they would lay out like a whole dinner and you know again you're talking about people that were starving or or really hungry so they they would stuff their their face. Maybe they did stash some food as they as they left, but they they were not watched. They were not um, uh, they did not get to stay for you know the funeral or anything like that. They just came in, ate the food, and and were gone. So then was the belief that these the people who were sin eaters obviously they're unpopular. Because, was was it because of the belief that then they absorbed literally absorbed all the sin and then they carried that with them out of the space and it stayed with them. Correct. Yes. So, so, you know, imagine you have like eaten the sins of, you know, 30, 40 people, you were sort of like on the, on the outside of things. Um, I mean, also, I guess the, the desperation of that, you know, uh, you're sort of the low of the low, you know, that you, right. would, you would, you would even do that. Um, and you didn't mind like carrying around these sins. And of course, they probably did sort of mind, but but, uh, you know, again, they were hungry and, you know, um, nobody ate the sins of the sin eater. Like, to, you know, it, you really you weren't going to find somebody to do that. So when they died, they pretty much died with all that sin or that was the belief. Yes. OK. And was this associated with any particular religion or was this more of a, a cultural belief uh, within a community? My understanding is more of a cultural belief. And like I said, I was reading there, there have been sin eaters and some different cultures, but the one that I was focused on was the the Scotland, the one in Scotland. Um, you know, Scotland tends to be very they're they're magical. They they very much believe in superstition, and so it was not based on like a Christian or you know theme or anything like that. It, it this was more of a supernatural sort of thing, like the, you know a mythical thing. Now it it's sometimes hard for us to totally understand how this kind of came to be and all that because we just rely on the history books to tell us um, we don't have time machines to <laughs> to help us out but you know it I, it does sort of make me think about you know when somebody dies you know modern day a lot of times people will bring food to the house and yes. you know so there there is like this whole culture of exchange, exchange food of food and exchange you know, has continued yes yeah right so yeah. I, you know it makes me sort of want to like go further into that. But I, I started researching that or stumbled across it because my my other work does have to do with identity, my identity in particular. So being a 61-year-old female 
and the fact that, you know, at 60, in my 60s, I sort of feel invisible or like I'm a freak. And I, so I am very interested in sideshows and carnivals and freak shows. And, you know, I'm from St. Petersburg, Florida. It's, it's kind of the, the, you know, Florida's sort of like the South on acid. It, it's, um, you know, there's, there's a sideshow and carnival about everything and that's really embraced. And so I grew up like with the circus right next door in Sarasota, Florida, and was very used to seeing a lot of different people and a lot of diversity in, in my community. And now, of course, you know, a lot of that's changed and, and I won't get into that part of it, but so I do uh, sideshow banners and in those banners and those drawings that I do, it's my faith as the the freak that I'm showing. So, you know, I've done things like the Bohemian twins, um, conjoined twins, uh, the wolf girl, she beast. That was one that, that was a popular one at the time. So there's a lot of, uh, of history with this. And so I knew that I wanted to do uh, a fat lady, you know, there's uh, jolly Molly and all these different jolly dolly, I think is the, the one historical. And I knew I wanted to do one centered around that and, you know, sort of touching on gluttony and, you know, seven deadly sins, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. that's when I sort of came across the sin eater. And I thought, well, that's kind of perfect because I do see that overweight woman myself as a, as a rather zoftic woman, that there's a lot of guilt at- attached to that. So that guilt really makes sense. And then it started making me think about my identity as a college professor. And so I started to combine those two things. So I feel very guilty at the cost of education for my students. And I feel like I'm eating those sins. I'm telling my students, yes, live your dreams. And I'm going to help show you how to make those dreams come true. And, you know, meanwhile, they're like 80000 or $200,000 in debt. And if they're lucky, they get a 30000 or $40,000 a year job. And, you know, how do you pay back all those student loans? I mean, it, and it just, it's not getting better. And so we currently have an administration, a secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, and then a man in office, uh, Donald Trump, who is not, you know, they are not thinking about equality in terms of education. And they're not thinking about how to give, you know, America good education that's fair in cost. It is becoming, a, you know, more and more a class issue where the people that have money are going to be able to pay for an education, and those that don't are not. In fact, Betsy DeVos is going to take away the free lunch for those kids in elementary school because the feeling is that, well, you know, uh, it was supposed to increase your test scores, but it didn't, so we're going to take the lunch away. I mean, you know, how insane is that? But it just, it really does mean that this is, you know, education in America is going to be elitist. And so you're not going to be able to fulfill your dream. What you're going to be able to do in life is going to be based on your economic station. And that is wrong. If you could give kind of a description of your entry for our prize this year, of what you depicted here, and kind of, you know, kind of go through those components. The piece is pretty close to life size. It's about 105 inches wide. There are three panels, and it's about six feet tall. So there is a woman at the table, a woman who looks like she probably weighs about 600 pounds. And in front of her is, uh, you know, two loaves of bread, and they, you know, have dollar signs on them. The face of the female figure is me, 
She is dressed in red, white, and blue. And there is a banner above her head that says Sin Eater. There's a curtain. The banner and the curtain were motifs that were often used in sideshow banners. And plus, I have to admit, just, you know, from a technical, formal point, they're really fun to do. So I do enjoy <laughs> enjoy them. But it is very bright blue, red, white, and blue colored. Right. You have that um, kind of patriotic theme kind of going. Correct. And then to the side, each side of her, so the right and left panel, there are circles. And there was usually a circle or two in a sideshow banner, and it would say real or it would say alive. But in my circles, I've got uh, an image that I drew of Betsy DeVos, and then around that circle, it says no free lunch, and it's just repeated. Um, and then on the other side is Donald Trump and um, uh, an image I drew of him. And then around that circle, around him, it says, I want to build a wall. And, you know, it the the wall thing sort of makes sense to me because I do feel like this is a, this is a class wall that we're starting to build in, in terms of education. And it used to be, you know, you could come from a really poor background. I did. I was a really, really poor kid. No one in my family had ever gone to college. In fact, uh, my father only had an eighth grade education. And so for me, I mean, that it was a complete game changer. You know, I, it gives you choices. You know, having an education gives you a whole lot more choices of, of, you know, what you can do in the world. And it just breaks my heart that that is not going to be possible or we're making, we're starting to make that impossible for, for students, for kids, you know, um, you know, it's, it's just wrong. And I do feel, I sort of feel trapped. Like, what do I do? How can I change this? Has this been kind of a cathartic experience to make this since you're just having obviously a very strong reaction to the current administration just on a personal level? Is this helping? Did it, do you feel better after you make art like this? It is very satisfying to, to draw some of the things that I draw and, you know, I'll, I will say too, Jennifer, and I'm sure you feel this way teaching journalism. So I'm teaching illustration students and there's editorial illustration. So, I, you know, a lot of, uh, not all of them, but some of them are going to embrace like political um, issues in terms of their illustration. And it's kind of like, okay, well, I'm teaching this, so I better get myself out there and like do it. This is what we should be about. Art isn't just pretty or beautiful. It can be. I mean, there's lots, lots of different aesthetics. But I've always been much more drawn to the type of art that challenges us or asks us questions or maybe pushes us in a direction we're really uncomfortable with. It is not, I am not looking to make anybody feel comfortable. I want them to feel like empowered, I, you know, and, and I know that I make a lot of people feel very uncomfortable. And if I do that, I'm not sorry. That's okay. I'm not here to here to please you, but but it is very pleasing to me to be able to make <laughs> to make these things. So so it's interesting to me what you're doing here is you're placing your your likeness, your face on these characters that you're doing, and are you doing that to avoid offending people? So if you draw somebody else, even if it's a person out of your head people might get upset. Are you doing that to kind of stop people in their tracks and saying, I'm going to use my own image here? Actually, I'm doing it because I'm putting myself in their place, you know, sort of, I mean, not to sound so cliche, but walking in somebody else's shoes. So I grew up in the 1950s, circuses, sideshows, carnivals, 
this was a very inexpensive way of entertainment. You know, we didn't tell, I mean, we didn't even have a TV, I think, when, when I was growing up until like 1960, their TV did exist. I'm not saying that, but so it was, it was very different. I mean, if you look at the history of carnivals, the whole entertainment situation was, was a bit different. Where I grew up, like I said, I grew up next to the circus. So when you started to have people sort of, you know, suggesting that folks were being taken advantage of and this wasn't the right thing to do and, you know, we shouldn't treat people that way. And um, so people started saying, oh, yeah, no, no, circus is bad, freak show is bad, side shows are bad. We should not be looking at somebody because they look, you know, they're, they're so different. You know, where I grew up, a lot of people lost their jobs. If you're a little person or if you're different in some way, these folks were able to have their own community. In fact, there was a city in just outside of Tampa called Gibsonton, which is practically deserted now, but it was called, you know, it was where the freaks, that was their city. If you're familiar with the, the movie Todd Browning's Freaks, there's a, a, a saying there where they sort of come together and say, one of us. It, they, there was very much a sense of community. They were independent. They were able to take, you know, take control of their lives. So while this kind of political correctness comes in and says, oh, you know, this is not, not good. And I'm not saying that there hasn't been some abuse here and there, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of like, oh, well, we're just going to get rid of all of it. Just to clarify, too, the people were willingly making a choice to participate. It wasn't like they were being forced into freak shows. Not only were they willing to participate, but they actually ran their own shows. What I'm doing is, I, I guess I'm thinking to myself, look, nobody's normal. We're all unique in some way, shape, or form, which means that we're all freaks. I'm kind of suggesting that. We, we all have these differences, and we shouldn't think that that's, well, we shouldn't look at that, or that it's wrong to stare, or, or it's wrong to be that way. You know, I mean, and, and you look at society now and you sort of see all these people getting plastic surgery and they're trying to look this way and that way and it's kind of like oh that seems to be really bizarre to me but but yeah I'm I'm just I am saying that I I'm a freak um and I you know you know I am Jennifer I mean in, in a good sense I'm I'm okay with that but <laughs> right. that's why my face is there to sort of remind you know that's that's me I can see myself as that I'm a 61 year old woman who's growing hair in places I've never had hair before, and it's falling out in all the other places, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, I have to pluck my mustache. Um, and and I, like I said, I'm rather zoptic, you know. I'm a big woman, so I am not this kind of like size six. There, there's all kinds of things that I can relate to, to, you know, some of these folks that, let's say, were in the freak show. We need to sort of be a little bit humble and a little more embracing of differences. That is something I think we need to celebrate more, not try to get rid of. So how do people respond to your work? When people see this, obviously, Grand Rapids Community College liked it and wanted to put it in their in their show. Um, so you got you got a venue not far from you, you know, you, you didn't have to park in a different spot, you know, you could kind of <laughs> go right, you know, just walk over to the next building. Um, but how how is your work received? And, and then in particular, this this piece, because for those who aren't familiar with Art Prize, those from further out of town, there's kind of a direct connection here. This is the yeah. Bessie DeVos is the mother of Rick DeVos, who founded Correct. Art Prize, and um, yeah. so this is obviously, um, you know, a, a dicey thing. Uh, and were you concerned at all about it? I didn't think about it, really. 
um, until I, you know, sort of went online to get to, you know, pay my $50 and stuff. And I, and I, then it sort of, I thought to myself, you know, Patty, you might not get a venue. You're talking about his mother. I had a lot of disagreements with my mom, so I'm sure he can, he can handle it. But at the same time, that's his mom. Yeah. Like, you know, on, on that piece. So, um, so it, it did, it did like cross my mind. The DeVosses have, have given money to a lot of things in Grand Rapids, a lot of things and wonderful things, you know, Grand Valley State University, Pamela DeVos actually has donated money to the fashion major at Kendall. I mean, you're hard pressed not to see where they haven't donated money, UICA, the Graham, I mean, everywhere, right? Everywhere. That's some of what, you know, I think I'm running into where, you know, on Channel 8 News, they're showing all these Trump pieces or political pieces, and they're like avoiding me like the plague. And I'm thinking, okay, uh, did you not like see my piece? Because Detroit did, and the New York Times have contacted me. But, you know, my own <laughs> Grand Rapids, you know, Grand Rapids hasn't. And then, you know, I'm I'm saying to myself, they, you know, they can't. I mean, like, what what are they going to do? They, they I, I think they're choosing to, like, just put blinders on and sort of say, oh, I really don't want to go there because, you know, the whole DeVos thing then comes up and maybe, maybe we, we shouldn't do that. And you know what? It's, it's okay. I want people to see it. I really like the response I get from students who are like, yes, you know, this is happening to me and I'm glad somebody is noticing and, you know, and, and, you know, yesterday when I was down at GRCC, they were just like, you know, telling me their stories and, and it was so good to hear them at least be able to voice what was happening to them and their concerns and what they were, they were having to do. And I'm just really glad I was able to show the piece. I don't expect anything, you know, more from that. And, and I do understand, you know, that the DeVos name holds a lot of credibility in, in this city. At the same time, she's the Secretary of Education. I'm not attacking her as just somebody in the city. She's the Secretary of Education. So she's definitely in conflict with some of the ideals and beliefs that I have in terms of education. And, and I feel threatened because of that. So, so yes, I'm going to challenge those ideas. And yes, she's up for criticism. She's put herself in that spot. So, you know, when you take office, when you take public office, when you become a public servant, then you open yourself up to criticism. Did the city have to pay any attention to me? No, they don't. But I'm really glad that GRCC did, and I'm glad that the people in Grand Rapids are coming down and taking a look at it. Now, on the flip side of that, I have encountered a couple of people that don't think I should be doing that. They were both older white men. And one I thought was pretty funny because he had come out to the table where myself and a student, Genevieve, who was watching the show, were sitting and asked if either one of us were, you know, one of the artists. And Genevieve said, oh, she is. And he said, oh, which piece did you do? And I said, the Sin Eater piece. And he said, oh, I thought a young person did that. Now, it was kind that's of awesome. like, That's kind of a weird, well, that's kind of a weird response. Me, but I guess, you know... <laughs> you don't realize that, you know, what, what you said, you know, might be taken like in a, in a not nice way. Yeah. It's um, kind of offensive so in I about said, five yeah, ways, said, but well, yeah. Thank you. You know? yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. Yes. I'm glad I think like a young person probably cause I teach young people. So I'm around them, but I didn't say that to him, but I, I was sort of thinking, he goes, Oh, I thought you did the teapot. Now there is 
some beautiful. <laughs> they're very beautiful. They are beautiful um, teapots. Madeline Kuchmerchek, and they're these beautiful teapots. I mean, they're exquisite. But I thought, but he said, you know, I thought a woman of your age would be doing the teapots, you know, and it's just like, oh, I see. I stepped out, I stepped out of that that comfort zone for you, you know, where I'm not making teapots, but I'm I have I I'm making a political statement. Not okay, you know, in in his book. So, and then another man was uh, had asked me, had come up to the table, and he said, "Well, what is a senator?" And and so I started to sort of tell him. He said, "Oh yeah, I read your artist statement," and walked away and got on the elevator. But I realized that I had pushed these two men in in ways they were not comfortable, and it made me really really happy. You know, it's it's kind of like, no, I will not behave. I am a 61-year-old woman without a filter. And so you can think that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not, you know, in my, my proper place as a female. Good. Because I am an educated woman with an opinion. And, you know, I make art. And so I am going to make art about what I see happening around me. And, and that's that. And, and <laughs> that would have been an interesting exchange to witness, I think. Um. Uh, well, it, you know, I knew I was going to, like, you know, I mean, I knew I, some people were not going to be very comfortable with that or, you know, it's like, oh, I really hate your teeth. And they are completely entitled to that. I mean, a lot of people don't think that, you know, that they've made comments. It didn't happen to me yesterday, but I've, I've heard people you know, say things like, oh, well, you know, that's really, that's not art. They shouldn't be making art about politics. Well, of course you do. You know, that we've got a whole history dating, like, you know, thousands of years where people have made art about politics. Um, and, and not all art has to be about politics, but, that, you know, uh, it, that's just silly. So I, I, I knew I'd get, I would get, you know, some pushback, but it, it really shocked me just how direct um, you, you know, how much I threatened them. And that's really what happened. I, I was this older woman who threatened these two older men, did not like it. Well, and I think I mean, they didn't. It, I was fine. It, it sounds like you were more than fine. <laughs> <laughs> what would you hope that someone would take away from it? Even someone that you wild, like the, the two men in the elevator that kind of walked yeah. off. What is your hope for your work? I hope that they just can't get it out of their head. So at least that they might question some of these things a little bit more, that they're not accepting some of this information as factual or not, not even paying attention to it, you know, um, uh, but sort of what, you know, even if it pisses them off where they're thinking, why would she do something like that? You know, um, you know, she's blaming other people, you know, and why is she doing that? It's, it's, so even having that kind of getting at, at folks to sort of just start to, to turn things around and sort of think about it is, is the most, I think, that I can hope for, 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 for someone like that, for those, for those gentlemen. I'm, I don't think I'm going to change their mind. I'm not trying to change their, their political views on anything. And do I think that there needs to be a lot addressed in education? Oh, you bet. I don't want it to stay the same. I want us to improve. And that's the thing that I have a problem with. We're not improving it. We're going backwards. 
And you were talking about like these schools, like not being equal. Um, Jennifer, I went through busing. I went to high school in the 70s in the South. I was bused for an hour across town to a school, um, to the black school, uh, because the people in St. Petersburg, Florida could not vote to give taxes evenly to all the schools. So the white kids were bused to the black school and the black kids were bused to the white schools. And here's what happened. There was a lot, there was riots, there were fights, not at the black school, at the white school. So the school that I went to, I got there. There were no textbooks. They were Xerox copies. Wow. There was no crosswalk. There were all kinds of things that should have been there that weren't. And as soon as the white kids were bused there, all those things changed. So education needs to be equal. We cannot look at each, like, district and say, you know, okay, they have to take care of their own. That That's not the way it should work. I mean, you know, I do not mind at all to pay taxes to help someone. And I'm not interested, you know, if everybody's doing what they should with the money. As long as I'm helping, you know, a few people have the same education, food, living, quality of life that, you know, other, other people are having, I'm good with that, all right? That's, I feel to do that as a human being. And that's what scares me about the educational system. Now, you know, I know what happens with busing. And it's like, gosh, are we, are we going back to that? I mean, holy smokes. I mean, I can't believe that, you know, that, you know, in the 60s too. Wow. Like it, it and like you said, sometimes you just sort of feel paralyzed. And at the same time, it's like, okay, well, what do I do? Well, I teach. So I need to get my students to start talking about stuff. I mean, I can't, you know, steer them one way or another, I, but I need to get them to start to ask questions and ask questions with their artwork and see that there are ways that they can use their artwork to help other people um, uh, and, and to start dialogues or conversations. Um, so, so now I, I think this has been like a cathartic experience for me in that I've sort of found, okay, well, I'm, I can't change the world, but I can do something. You know, I have this ability, this talent. I can use that to at least, you know, push a conversation in the way, you know, that that I want where people actually start talking instead of just being on polarized, you know, stands here and not 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 believing anybody, not listening to anybody, you know. Um, so it, yeah, it's it's a very strange time, but having lived through the 60s and having lived through busing, I just, and seeing our students, that generation, in some ways, I think maybe they needed the wake-up call, you know, where it's like, listen, if you don't get out and start voting and taking responsibility for what's going to go happen in this world, because I'm getting old here, and I'm not going to be able to vote, you know, for, <laughs> you know, in 50 years, so you need to you need to get out there and start making this world what you want it to be. And so maybe that too, you know, it's like like get out there, make make art. Just make art about what you believe in and feel strongly about it and get out there and and do things for other other people. It doesn't it doesn't just have to be a pretty picture that you hang in your in your office or or if it is then you know it should hang in someone's office to make them feel good or their home or whatever um 
but yeah, if, even if I just start a, a, a conversation, um, I'm going to feel good about that. Well, and that's, it really is the whole point of art prize is to have a right. conversation. And, um, oh, and, that, that, and that's kind of that almost ironic it. too about it is that now the conversation is about members of the family that started art prize, which is Correct. really kind of a, I don't know that any of us really saw that coming when art prize started. Oh, I sure, I sure didn't nine years ago. I mean, I've participated about, this is my fifth time, I think. So no. Yeah. Um, and, and isn't that interesting? And, and when you have people say, oh, well, and I say people, there are many artists in town that say, oh, boycott art prize. I just can't stand art prize. Well, you know, I, I do love like spectacle and carnivals. And what is art prize? It's a big art carnival in my, in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really good to have, you know, the public and artists and critics and, and just a huge mix so that you start to have that conversation. That's how art should be. It shouldn't just be for one, you know, group of folks. Um, uh, so I, I enjoy that, you know, I, I'm even like, okay, with duct tape Putin, who's down by the Kilwins chocolate shop, you know, there's a guy who made Putin on his horse with a American Eagle um, add a wire and then put duct tape around it and, and painted it. And, you know, he feels really strongly about it. I mean, um, and, you know, I, it's, it's a conversation. Um, right. uh, and, you know, the giant beanbag chair is a conversation. Like it's all art. Is some of it better than others? Oh, sure. Yeah, I do believe that. And as somebody who's educated in, in art, I definitely qualify certain things um, differently than some. But I love having it all out there. And, you know, some, somebody posted something on Facebook. I just, uh, that Rick DeVos, and I'm misquoting him, but Rick DeVos said, I just want to see a bunch of crazy shit out there for our prize. And I thought, you know, there is something to that. There is something to just putting a bunch of stuff out there and sort of seeing, like, what happens. It's almost like a social experiment. And I think that we're, we're seeing that now. Like, the social experiment is, you know, it brings tons of people downtown and mm -hmm. families, you know, looking at art. I mean, God, I never, I didn't see that in, happening in Grand Rapids in 1984. So, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm a, I'm kind of a fan of Art Prize, I have to tell you. You know, and I, I think it's, it's wonderful that you're, you know, getting out there and talking to reporters, you know, outside the area and getting your story out there. And uh, what are some things that they're asking you? Are they, are they really fixating well, on that controversy of, of you depicting the mother of the founder of Art Prize? Absolutely. This is, uh, and I'm sure that they have seen my image on the Art Prize, you know, site, as you can sort of scroll through the, the venues and the art and stuff. So the gentleman from the Detroit Free Press, you know, even said, I, I you know, I thought on the site, I'm interviewing a, a few artists that are doing um, political pieces. And yes, that the, the question is, always about, you know, how did you feel about putting, you know, the mother of the founder of Art Prize, you know, in your piece. Now, and that the New York Times was the same thing. This That is definitely the angle that they're coming from. However, it allows me to talk about education because they have to ask me more questions or, you know, they, you know, uh, just in talking, it's like, okay, well, I did this piece because even though they want the conversation to be around one thing, and we, and we talk a little bit about that. No, I'm not out to attack. I don't think anybody's completely evil, but I do see that 
the way that education go is going is frightening. And so it allows me to bring the conversation back to education and away from, you know, family ties. Uh, uh, let's put it that way. But, but um, and then, you know, and the same thing happens with the New York Times when he, you know, he it was a phone call, but he, you know, was asking about that, you know, did I think I would get a venue? Did I, you know, did I want to steer away from that? You know, um, even though it's about education, did you feel like we had to put the secretary of education in there? So, and, and so, you know, I can answer those questions, but at the same time, then I can start talking about how much student debt our students are in and that I'm a professor and that this is why I'm coming from, you know, this, this uh, opinion because I work with students, you know, I have firsthand experience. Um, um, so I'm not disconnected. I don't have to, you know, Google stuff online to find out, you know, how much uh, trouble my students are in financially because of all the student debt. So it does allow me to bring the conversation back to education. Now, we'll see what ends up in the articles, Jennifer. Um, I can't really control that. But yeah, they're definitely coming from it, having both uh, Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos in the piece. Well, yeah. if, if you could, if you could say something directly to Betsy DeVos, like what would you I mean, I'm assuming that if you were invited to coffee that you would go to try to talk a little bit about your perspective on it. I mean, is that is that a true you, statement? You bet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think she'll be calling me. But yeah, I would, you know, listen, I, I think, I think she's taken on a really hard job, probably did not expect all this. But I would say to her, please, please, please think about this, because you are not intentionally, but you are going to hurt so many kids. So many students that are not going to be able to live their dreams. Like, you know, she's talked about uh, more skilled jobs and things like that. And I think that's great, okay, if that's what you want to be. But it shouldn't be based on your economic station. And that's what I would say. We, we need to look past what somebody can afford. We need to make education more affordable. We need to maybe talk about some of these things uh, K through 12th grade about, you know, what is, do you like to work with your hands? You know, um, what kinds of things would you like to, to, to do instead of just like, what college do you want to go to? I think that, you know, unfortunately, sometimes high school counselors sort of jump to that um, because that was, that was 10 years ago, the way that, you know, we thought. And so maybe we do need to rethink that. I'm not in complete disagreement with everything, but I I don't think like cutting budget back that would take things away like school lunches and um, programs that would help, you know, kids that might be disadvantaged is the way to go. Let's quit looking at making colleges life easier in terms of what you believe with sexual assault and things like that. And really look at, you know, how can we give an education to everyone, like how how do we do that, and how can we put money back into the school so that that helps teachers to teach? You know, she's attacked some teachers pretty pretty harshly, and you know she's never taught, and so you know it it makes me think you need to know a few more teachers. You need to really see what they do. So I would hope that she just would listen to some of the teachers that are speaking to her now. You know, they're already trying to give her some some insight into this and I would I would hope that she wouldn't feel 
like she's just dug in and this is the way she's going to go. She needs to really open, open her mind a little bit and listen and then make some of these decisions, not just jump to the decisions based on money, on finances, on cutting budgets. Yeah, it would be so wonderful to see um, someone spearhead a program that would take the that ex- the expensive education that is a barrier for so many students, especially at the you know, uh, college level, and uh, help these students not have to stress so much. And exactly, it used to I work, used to work in admissions, and we would tell students. I mean, this was twenty years ago, but we would tell students, yeah, it's just like you know, if you were going to buy a car, you would invest that money in the car. Well, yeah, it's not a car anymore. It's Jennifer, a, it's a brand new, it's like a, it's a really new okay. fully loaded car every single year. Like, and, yeah. and, or it's a really nice house. I mean, we're not just talking, you know, um, you know, we're talking about a $200,000 house or $150,000 house. And, you know, there's a really good documentary out there. I can't remember what it's called, but it's, a, it's about sort of the history of uh, financial aid and, and losing uh, grants. And it started with Reagan. He's the one who cut education budget. It used to be if you were, you know, economically, you struggled, you could apply for a grant for financial aid, and it would pay 100% of your education, 100%. But, you know, you had to qualify. You, you had to be, you know, from a very poor economic background. And Reagan came in. I mean, I'm, I'm making this very short, but changed it. And uh, during his time, it was changed to now it's 41%. So, so now, but imagine that. Okay, so you're, you're poor, okay, your parents have no money, or they're not able to help you. So it's just you on your own, and you have no money to go to school. And even if you have no money, and you fill out the financial aid forms, in terms of grants, or even uh, student loans, it only pays 41% of what your college is going to cost you. 41%. Oh, my God. Where are you supposed to come up with the extra money? Yeah, for a lot of students, they can't come up with the extra money. They can't. There's no way. I mean, my husband and I, both of us work. We're lucky. We're teachers. We probably make less than people realize. I mean, you were talking about being adjuncts. I think that, you know, folks don't realize that, you know, we're not – we're not rich, okay, <laughs> when we're teaching. Um, we, we, we teach because we, we love to and we're probably really good at it and we've got good information to share. But anyway, I have the luxury of having another income. Um, but my husband had to dip in his retirement fund and, of course, I had to take out a Parent PLUS loan. That paid for almost 80% of what my daughters, both of them, would have owed because their financial aid, they didn't qualify for very much um, because both their parents worked and there was no way they could come up with the money. I mean, both of them got scholarships, but they still, you know, even the scholarship only paid for half. I mean, it's just insane. So I'm, I guess I'm thinking, golly, you know, here you have two parents that are working and we are struggling to pay for an education for our daughter. So again, you know, I mean, you know, a middle-class person should be able to pay for an education in, in America. And I can, but I've got to, uh, you know, take out tons of loans and dip into my retirement fund in order to do that. At the, at the very least, I can start a conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and that's good. And maybe something else happens. And maybe somebody else continues the conversation or gets involved in the conversation. And, 
And then maybe by some, you know, slim chance, I get to help a student. Um, and maybe bigger chance, I get to help more students. Uh, but somebody needs to somebody needs to help. So this this is the you know this is as much as I can do, I'm, and I'm going to try. So so that's you know. Well, that's that's, well, no, it's a very nice, it's a very nice idea of what you would do because, um, you know, do you lose students? Do you have students that you see and then they tell you like, I don't think I'm going to come back. Like, do you know people this has happened to? Well, um, we have been told by, you know, uh, uh, administration that, that, that happens. Um, and you know, you, sometimes you notice it's like, did that person graduate? I'm not sure. But the main thing, Jennifer, and I'm sure you encounter this, like, you know, you're sort of out getting your coffee and you see somebody who you had in class and they're like, oh, you know, I really loved your class, but I had to drop out my junior year. I couldn't finish. And um, I just ran out of money. And I, you're thinking to yourself, oh, no, 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 no. You know, right. Because um, it's so hard to go back. You know, it's really hard to go back. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. You know, and the, you like you said, they you're, there's taking five years to get through community community college because they're having to work and it it's sort of like you know really is this going to take me that long to you know get my degree and um you know and sometimes i think my generation sort of makes fun of a younger generation you know it's like oh well they you know everybody's living in their parents basement yeah because they owe so many much in student loans i'm glad we could have this conversation today because maybe someone who will hear it and an idea will strike them and maybe they're in a position to to do something faster than you and I can, you know. Well, and yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity just to just to be on your your podcast. This is that's awesome. A special thanks to Patricia for being on the show. I really did enjoy the conversation and it you know, it is one of those dicey things. Anytime you're making art that is critical, it ruffles feathers, sometimes it shuts people down. Sometimes people just want women artists with who are educated with opinions to just make teapots. And if you want to make a teapot, that's fantastic. And you should make a teapot. But if you want to make something else, it's not appropriate to let anybody else decide for you what you should be doing. You should decide. And I'm really glad that women like Patricia are out there kind of blazing a trail for other artists to comment on the world as they see fit. Unfortunately, these days, it seems like there's just so much to comment on. There's just so much unrest. And I don't know. I mean, this morning, I'm recording this intro. And uh, I woke up this morning. And the first thing I saw when I picked up my phone was the news, the horrible, horrible, heartbreaking news out of Las Vegas about all the people that died at the concert and all the injured. And I just, I just put my phone down and I'm just like, geez, what, when is this going to stop? I mean, we've had these terrible hurricanes and political protests and so much on our plate and so much violence and death. And it's just, it feels like a lot. And I'm not even directly affected by that. I don't know anyone personally. And my heart goes out to all of you who do, because, um, you know, me feeling fatigued by bad news is completely different than actually losing a loved one in a horrific way. And I sympathize. And um, I think it, these things are kind of a wake-up call once again. And I don't know how many wake-up calls it's going to take us, but we've got to do something to deal with this gun violence situation because I was born in the 70s and 
you know, when I was a kid, people, I didn't hear people talking about, you know, whether or not it was safe enough to go to a concert. You know, you just, your biggest hurdle was getting tickets and figuring out how you're going to get to the concert. And now it's really like you have to think about whether or not having a good time is worth the risk of being in a group of people. And that just is, it just feels so crazy. I appreciate all of you who listen to this show and we're creative people, we're resilient people. And uh, I mean, if you have thoughts about what we can do to try to really put this effort into overdrive to like really try to turn this crazy train around that we're on because it just feels like there's so much that just feels like really wrong to me. I'd really like to try to help sort this out. I have two daughters and oh gosh, I want to be able to hand the baton to them and I really want them to be safe and Uh, gosh, as a parent, I don't feel like, I don't feel real safe right now in this world. If you'd like to comment about anything on the show, feel free to email me, jennifer at craftsanity.com. Unfortunately, I had to shut down the comments on my website because it was being overrun by spam. Uh, Just crazy, like, you know, links to weird websites and all kinds of stuff. And I'm just like, this is insane. So I will likely have to just move my website or update it or use a different platform. I don't know. Right now I'm using WordPress and I'm not sure that that's going to continue to work for me because it's caused a lot of problems with my RSS feed and all that. The RSS feed uh, is sorted back out. So um, welcome to any new subscribers. I wasn't able to get new subscribers for a while there because my show inadvertently removed from the iTunes store after being there for 10 years. Kind of a crazy thing. But had a little computer trouble. My husband very patiently worked this out with help from our web host. And finally, Apple reinstated the show. So thank you <laughs> to all the people who played a role in that. And thanks for your patience. And thanks for the people who are alerting me to these problems because I don't go to the iTunes store and download my own show. Um, I kind of just go on to the next show. So I was kind of oblivious for a little bit there. So I appreciate that. And uh, like I said, I have one more Art Prize podcast that I've recorded with Gloria Kirk Hanna. And she's a fiber artist and she's a really interesting fiber piece at uh, Parliament the Boutique on South Division. And also two of the three owners of the business that's run out of Parliament have a great piece there too. So go check it out. There's a lot of fiber art in there. There's also leather work and... Um, handwoven goods. So go check it out. And I will be back hopefully in just a couple days with the next episode. So thanks for listening and keep your chin up. It's it's stressful these days, but we have to kind of try to keep going on and connecting on a human level with as many people as we can. Take care of the people in our communities who are struggling and not just be so focused on ourselves. And if we can bring everybody up, then we have a fighting chance of getting things to kind of level off and calm down, hopefully, in this country. So peace to you all. I will be back soon with the, with the next episode. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at craftsanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at craftsanity.etsy.com. Same time next week will be crap.